0: everyone and welcome back to another episode of the WTF PhD podcast, the podcast where I, Dr. Jamie Huff, try and answer all of the questions about the PhD process that make you say, what the fudge? This week I have an expert among experts as the guest on the podcast answering the five WTF PhD interview questions. This week's expert is historian and American studies scholar, Dr. Susan Curtis. Dr. Curtis was the interim head of the American studies program when I joined it in 2012, I believe at Purdue university. She was also on the admissions committee that admitted me to the PhD program. So I owe her a uh, debt of gratitude for that. And she wound up being on my dissertation committee as well. And her presence on that committee made my work immeasurably better. They say that the devil is in the details and details are really what sets good work apart from great work. And I don't know if my work is great, but I do know that it is better than it would have been without Dr. Curtis because of her attention to detail. More than that though, when I think of the activist academic educator that I want to be, I think of Dr. Curtis. If you have been lucky enough to meet her in person, The word that probably comes to mind when you think of Dr. Curtis is powerhouse. She is a powerhouse academic, a powerhouse teacher, and a powerhouse at encouraging her students. She is an all around amazing person. And I really think that the way that I interact with my clients as a dissertation coach is fundamentally shaped by how Dr. Curtis was on my committee, which is she, approaches every student with an infinite belief that you have what it takes to make this thing work, whether that be um, a problem in your argument that you can't figure out or you're struggling to get access to an archive that you need. She really believes that you can do it and is there to help you figure out how to do it. And so if you've been a client of mine and you have found that my coaching has been helpful and you like how I do it, that is also owed to Dr. Curtis, who was really a a committee member, though not my chair. And I would say my own kind of unofficial dissertation coach. She has overseen dozens, if not hundreds of PhD dissertations and shaped the lives of hundreds if not thousands of graduate students that have gone through the universities where she has worked. And so I'm so excited for you to listen to her take on these questions today. As everything is with Dr. Curtis, it is a wonderful combination of humor and practical advice to get you through the process. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed catching up with Dr. Curtis. Simply, uh, other than your research topic, what did your PhD teach you? Um, And I can adjust this question for you a little bit because you have overseen a lot of PhD projects. So if there's any takeaways from that that you'd want to share, I'd be more than happy to have them.
1: um, I would say in my own Ph.D. process, and I would say it, it's also true of the students um, I directed, mm-hmm. and that is you learn a lot about yourself. You learn about what your strengths are. It, you learn about where you have weaknesses, mm-hmm. uh, and weaknesses, but you have, that's maybe not the best word. You just, I mean, I think the most important thing is that you learn about what your strengths are and your passions are yeah so i have seen some students who sort of limped to the finish line of the phd program and realized i don't want to do this yeah and and that's okay you know it's it's not like that's failure it is not i think self-discovery is so such an important part of the whole learning endeavor from kindergarten through phd so uh to be honest, I think for anybody who's uh, early on in a PhD program, if they're if they're thinking about what is this all going to amount to, one important takeaway is that you learn you learn about yourself. And you learn enough about yourself to realize even if you finish but don't pursue your professional uh, a professional career in the degree that you've earned, or if you are unable to secure You learn what your other strengths are and you can figure out from there. I think um, you can figure out from there what you want to do with your life that will be rewarding and and fulfilling.
0: Mm. That's I love that you said that because um, it's for many folks, it's the week right before the term starts for them. And so I'm kind of um, a lot of, my very generous guest scheduled their interview for this week. You know, we want to knock that thing out before the term starts, and you get busy <laughs> with grading and office hours and things. Um, so I'm very grateful that they made time for me. But I've talked to many people this week, and um, you know, it's we've talked about the goods and the bads, and and what it means to quit partway through or to not pursue an academic job at the end. Um, and I think there's this natural tendency to talk a little bit more about the bad parts, right? So like the, the sunk cost of pursuing a PhD rather than starting a corporate job and hopefully accumulating raises and pensions and things. And, um, but I love that you highlight that we learn about ourselves in the PhD because um, I, m- I might be a little bit of an exception. I Knowing what I know now, I would do it all again. I would do it differently. But I would do it all again. And part of that is because for all the ups and downs of the process, one of the things I learned about myself um, is that I just loved every bit of it. So one of the things that I tell my coaching clients is that the academic job has three big pieces you get paid for, and it's teaching, research, and writing, um, and I love all three of those. And I got to do those while I was doing my PhD. I got to do them for years and I got to do them with great people. Um, And so I, I not only learned that about myself, but I learned that I could look for those in other places. So I just, I love that point so much that um, nothing is ever really wasted in this process.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think um, if we measure success, only by did i get a job did Mm. i get my dream job did i get the accolades that i wanted we're missing the point completely because there's such a thing as learning for learning's sake Mm -hmm. and i think if you recognize that early on that especially in um a market like this one a job market like this one um, you know, if you start with the idea that I may or may not get a job in this field, I may or may not get my dream job, but what can I get out of this? Mm-hmm. And just thinking about how, it, how um, graduate education can make your worldview bigger. It yeah. can make your empathy bigger because you're exposed to so many different ideas and people and approaches to understanding the world that um, that in itself is a takeaway,
0: you know, oh, yeah. whether you get a
1: job or not, I think. And it's too often, I think we, we give ourselves false measures, which leads to these very bad periods of uh, being down on ourselves for not accomplishing mm-hmm. what we had set out to accomplish. But, you know, it could be that some of the goals we may have set for ourselves were um, just not the right measure for yeah. what we were all about.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. The way that I phrase part of what you're talking about, and I think I've talked to you about this in the past is the the process versus product. Um, And when I teach this is always a lecture I give my students near the end of the semester when I get kind of all mushy and like, you know, live your best lives. Um, But education, like religion and like health is a process. And if someone tries to sell you a definitive product, right? Like if you do all the right PhD steps, you will get this job. Or if you intermittent fast and only eat keto, you will be your perfect weight. They're <sighs> lying to you. They're lying to you and you're going to fail and you're going to blame yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, th- I just love that you highlight focusing on the process and what we get out of that process.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So then that. I've seen,
1: well, I've, I'll just, I'll just yeah. throw in very quickly. Yeah. You know, I, I directed a lot of dissertations mm-hmm. and I saw, and I served on a lot of dissertation committees of which I was not the director. And I think I saw that a lot with people, you know, they would start sort of tilting toward their strengths and yeah. the, um, the strengths might be uh, being very quick analytical studies such that at the end of the process, it doesn't matter that they didn't end up in an academic mm-hmm. uh, position because that, that ability to think quickly and critically and to make decisions based on that, that critical acuity, that led to other really exciting opportunities. So, um, so, so I, it's not just my own experience. I think I'm speaking for dozens of students oh, I, yeah. I saw go through that process.
0: Absolutely. Well, that's kind of a perfect segue into question number two which is in your opinion who should get a phd
1: well uh, i'm going to be the unorthodox person here (laughs) i think anybody who has the uh is willing to make the commitment Mm -hmm. and is eager to learn something and has a a burning question that is just not going to be satisfied from you know uh swooping through the internet, uh, I think that person should pursue a PhD. And and if you get accepted into a PhD program, then go for it. Because you're you're a seeker. And Mm -hmm. I think all seekers should be accepted. It doesn't, I think, for any kind of a graduate program to assume that they know better than an individual what they're capable of doing, or what is worthy of doing. That's you know that's just so creepy. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think I think if you, if this is something that you want to do, then um, the program is secondary. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got you should do it. I I really don't believe in drawing um, boundaries around. A special special class of people who should be allowed or encouraged to pursue the PhD I think that's got to come from within
0: oh absolutely um, and so I will probably um, go back and so the way that this works which you already know but someone listening to this podcast probably doesn't is that um, for your time we have this meeting and I ask you the questions and you give brilliant answers and we record that. And then later on, um, I record a very long, mushy intro about how great you are. Um, And then I edit it into something palatable. And then that kind of goes on the front end of this. Um, And so when I record this intro, I may say this information over again. But um, I, of course, first met you when you were the the chair, the head of the American Studies program um, in my first year because the admissions committee admitted me. Hooray. Um, and I remember I remember you saying that at our orientation, uh, that we were all there because we had a question that couldn't be ignored. Um, and the way that that set the tone, and then particularly as I have moved away from that program into different institutions and Uh, working with different populations of students in different capacities from teacher to advisor and other things, um, it really has impressed on me how unique my cohort was because you and the admissions committee had that point of view. And so we had a higher than average, um, for the size of our cohort, we had a higher than average Portion of international students and working class students and, um, and the way that that shaped the questions and the way we did research and the way that our program engaged with the community around us, I think was really, uh, at least for me, it was really special.
1: Oh, that's cool. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that because that, that really was purposeful. Yeah. Um, I felt like uh, we would be a better community if our community looked a little bit more like the real world. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, uh, we were really purposely striving for uh, a diversity of experience in the people we admitted. And I think more important, well, equally important, was the idea that um, when someone wrote a compelling statement that this is something I just have to know, And I'd I'd read those statements and others on the committee would read those statements. And I think, yeah, we need the answer to that. That's, (laughs) that's so cool compared to um, other applications that I would see where uh, someone would say, you know, I've enjoyed my fill in the blank courses as an undergraduate and I want to go to graduate school to learn more stuff. And I think, you know, that's, that's nice that you want to learn more stuff, but you can read books yeah. and learn stuff. You control the internet and learn stuff. Um, but if there's not something that has really sort of grabbed you by the throat, this is going to be a tough journey because you're going to be, a lot of stuff is going to be thrown at you. And you know, what are you going to do? Just, you know, catch the balls as they come at you. Um, so the, the more important thing I think is to just be driven to want to know something yeah. so that those that's exactly what we were uh you know trying to accomplish is to create a community where we were all eager to know something the other thing that I wanted to avoid and I think we've been successful for the most part in in that program is I didn't want it to be cutthroat yeah I was I mean I heard about these uh, instances it wasn't my experience in graduate school Uh, But it was it it was the experience of many people I knew who went to graduate school that they were trying to withhold what Mm. they were finding Mm -hmm. from their cohort because, you know, somebody might steal it or somebody might print something before I get to print it. I just thought, you know, that's that's ridiculous. Yeah, Uh, my advisor, my advisor in. Uh, graduate school, my first advisor said something like, you know, we don't own knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that made such a deep impression on me that, you know, he he was trying to engender that same spirit where Mm -hmm. uh, we would look at this enterprise as something that we did individually, but we uh, benefited from sort of a collectivity. And that's what I wanted to uh, help reproduce at Purdue. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, and it's so counter to the way academic culture is in in so many spaces, um, and yeah, it's it's funny because I feel like I didn't fully absorb that lesson from the program until a few years later. Um, we probably haven't had a chance to talk about this, but um, since graduating from Purdue with my PhD um I have decided on a life goal that none of us would have predicted at the start of it which is I really want to convert abandoned malls into urban farms Um, yeah thank you I have a whole thing it's because no one wants to repurpose abandoned malls because malls are so hyper specific and cheaply built that they're too expensive you can't make a profit from converting the building but the biggest part of a mall. By square footage is the parking lot which you can easily yeah. convert um and so i used to be very like um i didn't tell people this idea a lot because i was so kind of in this academic competition mode that i did not pick up from our program but that was just kind of in the ether that i was like what if someone does it first and then one day i was like what if someone does it first i'm gonna tell everyone because maybe someone who has the money to do it will do it before I do get the ball rolling. Yeah, that's that's what I think I fully learned that lesson. I was like I can I can tell everyone and other people can build on it and it doesn't just have to be limited to my strengths and weaknesses. Amazing. <laughs> um so I yes, I thank you for creating a culture where I was able to learn that even if it was on a delayed schedule.
1: But that's what it takes sometimes.
0: <laughs> learning is a long game. That's what I tell myself. Yes, it's, yes. It's, it's a long game. Um, so with that in mind, learning is a long game. What would you tell someone starting their PhD process?
1: Well, you have your burning questions. So you're yeah. if you're my ideal student, you have something <laughs> you really want to know. Um, I would say um, take courses that challenge you. Mm.
0: Um,
1: read outside of your little narrow uh, slice of what you think matters. Because if you're pretty clear about what you think matters, it's easy to develop a kind of tunnel vision. Mm
0: -hmm. And the only
1: thing you're going to read is on the widget that you want to (laughs) build. And um, I think what you'll find is, in fact, almost everybody I know had a moment when they were reading something, whether it was Mm -hmm. archival or secondary, where it was like, a giant light bulb lit up over their heads. And like, now I understand the way I've got to go after this. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, let let learning surprise you. That would be my biggest advice. Just mm. let learning surprise you by opening yourself to, uh, to books, to ideas, to classes, to professors that you didn't think were on your, you know, point A to point B track but who can surprise you and and help you think in ways that are new and innovative.
0: I love that. I love that so much. I, um, if you don't mind, I wanna share a story about that, which is it was my first semester at Purdue and I was taking um, American Studies 601. I think they've changed the name since, but the intro class <sighs> for graduate students. And uh, I was just really struggling. I had my burning question and I, I had pieces from what I'd done in the past. I was very rooted in communication and rhetoric and media in the past. And it just, it wasn't gelling for this final project. Um, And our lit review was coming up. It was due really soon. I was like, none of this is right. And I was just driving myself crazy. And um, I was teaching in the women's studies program. Uh, which you'll remember because you helped me apply for that job. And, um, I had gone into the copy room to check my mail or get a snack or something, something. And I happened to glance at the printer and like a gift from the heavens. It was the first page of this article about um, about I'm going to forget. I want to say transvaginal ultrasound, but that's not what it was. Um, it was essentially a thing, an artifact during and after World War II, of a specialized type of gynecological exam designed to accustom you to penetration so that you wouldn't freak out on your wedding night. Um, and it was because one of my women's studies friends had found this book and was printing an excerpt for her students to read. And it literally, that changed the whole... Shape of the rest of my PhD because I went and I practically grabbed her by the collar and said, Suzanne, where did you get this book? <laughs> <laughs> and she very generously, she's like, here's the book. You can get a digital copy from the library. Um, and I read the book and it was by a historian. And I had never thought of myself as a historian. I, I you know, I was so rooted in communications that mm-hmm. I did wind up. Uh, picking a committee of all historians, um, yes. and, and taking classes in the history department, which I never would have done if not for that kind of, um, just random thing that I saw on a printer that made all of these thoughts kind of like a slot machine, like it suddenly they all fell into line. Yeah, yeah interesting. So yeah, let, let the learning surprise you and it will come from odd places. Uh, yes. the printer, the bus stop, uh, Lots of uh, professor that you might never take a class from, but meet at a reception. It it comes from all over. I love that. Right. So then, um, let learning surprise you. I'm just going to marinate in that all day because that's so good. But for someone who is in the middle of their program, however you kind of define the middle, what is the advice that you would give them?
1: Well, by the middle. Yeah. I'm assuming that you have taken most of your courses. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're prepping for exams. Maybe you're starting to conceptualize a dissertation. Mm-hmm. At this point, uh, hopefully you've been surprised. Yes, yes. Hopefully things have started to come together. I think at this point it's time to start thinking about organizing. Mm. And and it's... Um, I used, to, I used to use this term collating mm-hmm. that helped me think through what I was doing. So you've gotten, you can put things in piles, like yeah. here's some of the stuff that I learned from history mm-hmm. and calm and literature. Um, here's some individuals that, that I think are exemplary of the subject that I want to examine. Here's a book or whatever, and then start collating what what of all of these kind of go together, mm. so that you can begin to think about patterns, start thinking about hypotheses, uh, start thinking about okay, now I've I've had this burning question; it has morphed because of all of this stuff that has happened. So how am I going to corral it back into something that is focused? And so at this point in, in, I think, any graduate student's career, it's time to start uh, the roundup. (laughs) Corral all that information. I love it. And and start getting it, you know, focused and organized. Um, Hopefully by exams, though, I'm going to just interrupt Mm -hmm. myself here. At the point where I took all of my exams, I still didn't know exactly what my dissertation was going to look like. So, you know, I'm I'm giving great advice, but it was not advice that that I followed in my own experience. Mm -hmm. I knew kind of generally where I wanted my dissertation to be. I just hadn't quite figured out how how it was going to help me understand the thing I wanted to know, which... um, was about how how societies, uh, as they become modern, what do they do with religion? Mm-hmm. So it, eventually, I found a way of getting at all of that stuff. But by the time I took exams, I really didn't know exactly how I would do that. Yeah. So, but obviously, um, at the point where I took exams, I. St- already knew how the question had changed. Mm -hmm. And I already knew that what I had done up to that point wasn't going to be the answer. So getting organized for the next step, which is slightly after the middle of your program, um, I think organizing was the very first thing that I did.
0: Yeah. That's so important because if you go to WTFPHE.com, the very first thing that you'll see on the website, like it's in the header, and I put it there very specifically, is I did everything wrong. And that's why you should trust me, because I know, (laughs) I know why it seems like the right thing to do right now. And I know why it is not. I also did not organize. And so a lot of how I describe what I do now, is I spend my days coming up with the products and tools I wish I had had as a grad student. Yeah. Um, both in terms of thinking through, um, you know, what pile does this fit in? Um, so I'm going to insert a shameless self-promotion here. I have a created a series of prelim worksheets that has a tiered reading system. And for every tier, the more in-depth you read, you have to be able to answer a number of questions that are essentially what pile does this fit in? Um, oh, nice. And uh, I'm currently working on something I'm really excited about. I'm working on it with a friend who uh, is a dungeon master for wow. D&D games. Um, and we are making a prospectus role-playing work shape, workshop. So um, if if your method is kind of like your arsenal or your armory, the type of research you're doing is kind of your character class, um, and then your literature is kind of the lore behind your project, right? So trying to make these things fit into piles because I certainly did not, and it cost me a lot of time. I would say by inability to put things in piles at the beginning of this process cost me at least half a year.
1: Yeah, I, I don't doubt it. Yeah, that's it's huge.
0: Yeah, it it is.
1: You know, and I, uh, uh, okay, now I'm going to make a plug for yes. um, old geezerdom. Do it. Because <laughs> um, I know a- anybody who's listening to you is um, fully comfortable with the digital, digital electronic world. They probably have mm-hmm. everything on, um, you know, some kind of file, a Mac file or a PC file. One of the advantages of being old school with five by eight note cards mm-hmm. and a pencil mm-hmm. <laughs> is that you actually had physical piles. Yeah. And as the piles change, it's really simple to resort. And I can't tell you the number of times I would sit down with my note cards and just rearrange the piles or yeah. discover new patterns that, wait a minute, I've got these things in three different places. What if they were all together? What does that tell me? And when it came time to, um, organized the dissertation, it, that was immensely helpful and mm. to the, every single project I worked on after that, every book, I still have boxes of note cards that um, that ended up being in the bins that they're currently in because they were moved around, you know, I yeah. can physically move this and and I know, I don't need to be told that that can happen electronically, it's just do you, do you really? yeah Yeah. yeah. And I think when you have it here, the physical thing in your hand, it's, you're more likely to put it in a different pile mm-hmm. than electronically. So just just a thought, anything you have electronically can be printed out and then it can be put in piles.
0: Absolutely. I, you know, I insist that my coaching clients print out their work to edit it. I don't, I mean, I can't well, like, good for you. yeah, I can't like bust into their house and like force them to do it. But if they are working with me, I insist that they print it out to edit because it really does. I don't know why, I don't know the science behind it, but it makes your brain work differently. And I can say, I got that from you. All of the core articles for my dissertation, the things that were like the main hub, I printed off and I highlighted and I put them into physical binders. <laughs> That yes. had the label, you know, so for venereal disease, that was on the outside for absence only education. And I really would, if I got stuck, I would pull them all out and kind of shuffle. them. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Um, and it's so, it is so good for inspiration because you might see two things fall together and think, well, have I put those in conversation? And, and if not, why didn't I do that? And, and what would happen if I did? And it's one of the best ways for busting through writer's block. It really yes. is. So I'm gonna I'm gonna second your uh, your plug for um, analog methods for sure.
1: <laughs> Let's see how nice you are. You say
0: analog, I say geezer. <laughs> um. So question five is really pretty simple, which is, what else would you add?
1: What else would I add? Yeah, well, I think one of the things we haven't talked about very much is writer's block. Yeah. And it happens, I think, to almost everybody at some point. Oh, yeah. Uh, and what I observed is that some people could not leave the archive, mm-hmm. could not stop researching. Yeah. And I understand that. I mean, it is so cool to unearth new information. Um, if you're looking at primary documents, or somebody's letters, you know, you want to read every last thing. Mm-hmm. Um, for other kinds of projects, it's more about stuff that's published, but you you just don't want to ever stop. And at some point, you have to, yeah. you know. So, um, staying too long in the research phase tells me, and it always did tell me with a student, you're not ready to write, yeah, or you have started to write and you're blocked. You don't mm-hmm. know what you're doing, and so uh, then I've offered I've offered students in the past a number of strategies, and one that I'm not sure anybody took me <laughs> up on any of them. You work your way through this, but um, what I did, I hit I hit writer's block, and it was uh, I was having trouble getting started. I wrote actually the second chapter of my dissertation first, and then I mm-hmm. thought, you know, that's I really have got to launch this thing. Why am I having such a hard time? So one day, just in a fit of uh, absolute, almost panic, I sat down at my dining room table with uh, a stack of uh, fool's cap, and I just started writing my whole dissertation by hand. And it took about seven pages. So what I mean is, I said, this is what this project is about. Here's why it's important. Here's all the things we have to know in order to understand how this process unfolded. And I arbitrarily said, and now in chapter two, this is what we're going to find. And here in chapter three, this is what we're going to find. These are the sources. And I I would not put the pen down until I had finished my whole, finished my whole dissertation. Mm -hmm. And it was about seven pages of the scrawliest handwriting you ever saw, which I then cut up Mm -hmm. into chapters Mm -hmm. and taped to my wall. Yeah. And then I could sit down and I and I knew what the agenda for each chapter was. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to be uh, knuckle dragging like me to do that. You can do it in another way. I I would say with every book that I wrote, I did some version of that same thing. And I just when I was writing in Spain, my uh, computer was right in front of a window, I would just tape it to the window and then look up, you know, have I, have I dealt with with that? So giving yourself, even if you don't use that as your, uh, as your tool, I think figuring out what it is you want to say and what people need to know in order to understand the argument you want to make, that will help you break through writer's block because you've got to have some way of knowing it. Yeah. Um, another strategy that uh, actually is one that my husband uses, uh, he writes a fairly elaborate outline mm-hmm. on the computer, and then he just starts at, you know, Roman numeral one and, and starts typing until he's said everything about that thing that needs to be said, and then he moves on to the next. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons his writing, I think, is so... Uh, extremely well organized and, and clear because he has created the path. The hard work was, you know, creating the outline and then you just sort of fill in. It's kind of like your coloring project. Yeah. <laughs> you have an elaborate design and then it's a matter of filling it in with mm-hmm. all of the color and, and nuance and uh, shading and so forth. So uh, So that's another strategy. I think everybody needs to think as they're wrapping up, how am I going to get through this process and how am I going to get through those moments when I've been blocked? Just do it. Yeah. And remember, leave the archive at some point. Got yes.
0: to. <laughs> you do have to. Um, I, I love that. So I have a phrase for part of what you're talking about and I call it the wild promises Document. Um, And so whenever I'm writing and I tell my clients to do this, too, so that you don't break out of the flow of writing, because the problem that I had when I started trying to write my dissertation, is I would make a claim, an innocuous claim, and then because I have ADHD and anxiety and my brain is too good at seeing what it thinks is the future. Um, which is always bad because of the anxiety part. I would flash forward to me in a job talk, which spoiler alert, I never did a job talk. I never made it that far in the interview process. So take that brain. Um, I would flash forward to a job talk and someone challenging me on that question. And then I would spin myself for the rest of the day into the looking at everything I would need to know to back up that one innocuous claim, which is not a way. To make any sort of progress. And so, what I eventually developed to cope with that was what I called the wild promises document, where I would make a claim like, um, you know, in this chapter, introductory phrase, you know, in this chapter, we're going to see these things, and this will segue us to chapter three, where we're going to talk about this thing. And then I would just have a separate document where I would say, hey, you, be sure to segue to this at the end of chapter two and go to chapter three to remind myself of these things that I had said and to be able to let it go and stay, yeah. in, the, stay in the flow of writing. I do have a funny story about your husband, about Dr. Cutter though. Um, yeah. So he was not on my committee, um, but I think he kind of loosely knew what happening was happening because of course it affected your schedule. Um, and so I bumped into him in university hall um, shortly after I was ABD. And I had started writing and, um, he, you know, he asked some sort of kind question, like how is writing going or how are you finding it? How's that transition? Um, and I was like, well, I decided to skip over the introduction in chapter one and chapter two and four kind of, I envision them as mirror images of each other. And so I'm kind of writing those at the same time. It's a little bit like the writing equivalent of a tandem bicycle. And he said, oh, that's very smart because the first chapter is the hardest. And I thought that was a joke. I thought that was a glib thing people say like, oh, you always find it in the last place you look for it. Like, of course you do. You're not looking for it anymore. Cause you've had. I went back to write the first chapter and it was the hardest thing I had ever done after having four chapters under my belt. I was like, oh, that, that was not a joke. That was a truth bomb. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, it is. Yes. And so many of the students I worked with, that was the hardest one to write. Yes,
0: it you really know, just is. You know,
1: sort of setting out what this journey is going to be and what you're going to discover uh, by the end of it, which sounds like it's e- it should be really yeah. easy to write, but it isn't. It just isn't. You don't know in what order you need to Mm-mm. tell people the stuff they're going to learn. Um, I, that was exactly where I got tripped up. I mean, I just I struggled with that uh forever i mean well not forever eventually i wrote my whole dissertation in one sitting yeah joke but um (laughs) but it took that and 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 i remember still the the kind of panic i mean it really was uh, a deep kind of anxiety like i'm writing this how come i don't know how to say it how come i can't how come i can't get this started yeah so for other advice i would just say if you're feeling that Um, you're not alone. I I think everybody who has written a dissertation or a book, or even an article, everybody has gone through that. Mm
0: -hmm. So it's
1: not, don't take that as a sign of failure, take that as a sign of your humanity.
0: Yes, for sure. And I, I love that you highlight that because um, I think that interviewing folks for this podcast has been actually a little healing for me because the process by nature is so isolating and everyone has shared some version of that and, um, getting an opportunity to hear the stories of, of scholars I really admire and just think, Oh, it must come so easy to them. Um, and hear that everyone kind of struggles with this has been, um, personally kind of like, Oh, I'm not the only one. Um, But I, yes, I just, I talked to someone yesterday who said that they got back from their year abroad doing research in the archives, a historian, and they sat down to write and they just cried. They just cried. And for them, what they figured out was, I don't know how to write a book, but I do know how to write a 20 page essay. And so I'll just write a bunch of 20 page essays and then kind of quilt them together. And that's how you got started. And for me, I had to trick myself by, I didn't call it chapter one. I called it theory and methods. And then I just explained as if I was telling a class because teaching is something that makes a little bit more sense in my brain than writing, why the author, which in this case was me, used this type of theory and methodology to approach this question and what the advantages and disadvantages of that were um so the ways that we find to trick ourselves are very interesting but that first chapter is brutal even if you save it to last that first chapter yeah, is really yeah it
1: is and actually uh that's another um i think another thing that just needs to be said out loud is that when you sit down to write your dissertation you can't write it all at once no and it sounds again like a simpleton speaking but um but it, it's so overwhelming that, okay, mm-hmm. now I'm going to write what is essentially the first draft of a book. Yeah. Oh, so a, a way to get past that is to think about what chunk of that am I going to write today? And um, I, that worked with, uh, I can't tell you how many uh, students I worked with yeah. that who would be just sort of uh, floundering around. They had pieces here and pieces there. And, and a lot of times, I would just have them, well, send me all the pieces that you have and let's see what you actually yeah. have. And and then, you know, from there you can say, well, in this chapter, it looks to me like you're done. All you need is a paragraph. Yeah. So write that paragraph and move on. Yeah. And, you know, and some, so another piece, yet another piece of advice <laughs> is do trust. If you have an advisor who is willing to read your work, trust him or her to read your work and tell you what you still need. Um, If you don't have, and uh, to be honest, many people don't have an advisor who either will read in a timely fashion or who will read and offer you a diagnosis. Uh, They'll just say they read it and, uh, well, there's a problem, but I don't know what it is. (laughs) Then find someone who is willing to read and to give you those kinds of constructive pieces of advice. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying criticism, but pieces of advice. Because um, sometimes somebody else is gonna see what you can't see. Cause it's like when you try to proofread your own writing, you know what you meant to say. So a lot of times you you lied, you just skip right over the Mm -hmm. misspellings or the grammatical errors. And that's autobiographical too. (laughs) Yes, yeah. So, uh, So anyway, I just think I think, um, trusting your community, trusting uh, an advisor, if if that person has the characteristics that I've described, Um, and, you know, put it up, put it on someone else's plate for a few minutes. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can get the advice that you need to go back to it. Sometimes people just are afraid to say this piece is done. Mm-hmm. and you need someone else to say it for you, that this is done, you know, this makes sense, or you've got something here. Um, and then finally, when all else fails, just write down everything you know. Some yeah. professors will call it a data dump, Yeah. but I think that sometimes is you, then you know what you know. And when you do the second draft, you'll maybe figure out how to tell what you know in a more either organized or compelling way. So mm-hmm. don't be afraid of the data dump.
0: Yeah, the data dump is a wonderful, wonderful tool. Um, yeah. absolutely. And I think that's certainly one of the things I'm most grateful for is to a person, uh, well, to a woman, cause my committee was all women. Um, everyone on my committee was so gracious. Um, uh, not with just willingness to read, But getting it back to me in a timely manner, um, I don't think a single person ever took more than two weeks with feedback you could grasp, you could grab onto, you know, it it was not nebulous and it wasn't always feedback I liked. Um, I think part of what I didn't understand about the process at the time is that part of your committee's job is to anticipate what other people will say so that you are not surprised during a job talk or a conference or negotiations with a publisher. Um, so it certainly wasn't always pleasant feedback, right? And I was like, why are they asking this? How could they ask this? Did they not read it? And I was like, well, they're not asking that because they didn't read it. They're asking that because they know that a job committee is going to skim it and someone is going to ask you this question
1: yes.
0: right. <laughs> in the future. And so, yeah, that that feedback, well, not always appreciated in the time uh, has paid large dividends since
1: oh i'm glad yeah i had um an advisor who was uh brilliant but as an advisor um i know my stuff ended up on the bottom of whatever pile he had yeah and and i ended up oh this is so embarrassing (laughs) i ended up stalking him because he didn't keep very good office hours and and I would give him stuff and, and it'd be weeks and I hadn't heard anything. And I I thought, well, is it that terrible? Or is it you know, what is it? And and then he, oh yeah, yeah, I'll get that to you right away. And then it'd be another three weeks before I would actually see it. And all the way through, it'd be like not helpful. Yeah. There were a few marks to indicate where there were grammatical lapses or spelling lapses. There'd be little comments off to the side oh well said and then the comment at the very end was well full speed ahead to your next chapter and i mean, not helpful. yeah no, just not <laughs> helpful i know there's stuff wrong here yeah um and even when he when he would point to things that were not quite right it would be in the form of a question but
0: mm-hmm.
1: you ought to read blah blah wasn't there and <laughs> And then, when it came time for the defense, you know, actually, even for the defense, it was like I wasn't prepared for his or anybody else's objections. Yeah. Um, And luckily, they were not fatal flaws in in the product, but it meant that the process of turning that dissertation into a book was arduous because the things that I could have been thinking about during the dissertation process, I wasn't, I mean, I was just sort of full speed ahead, you know, to the next chapter. So um, I think you've got to have people that you trust and you, I'm glad you, you, you responded the way you did about the feedback to your (laughs) dissertation. You know, trusting people, even when what they say seems hurtful at the time, because nobody and certainly not the women on your committee, nobody was interested in hurting you. Yeah. We wanted to keep you from a bigger hurt
0: uh,
1: <laughs> at some point yeah. on the road. So, you know, here, here are the red flags you need to pay attention to. Yeah. And so you need, you need that person, uh, as you're writing
0: something. You do. And I will say this as a not, um, this is not for me. This is, this is for you. Cause I don't know if I've actually told you this, but, um, i left purdue you know degree in hand um but i also had an offer to submit a book proposal to an academic press i left with that because my committee was so rigorous um that it changed the way that i talked about my work in public which oh. i i met someone at a conference who was like this is this seems really ready to go <laughs> um and so that is kind of you know that is the benefit of all of you kind of giving me that feedback is it It changes the way you talk and think about your question um, to a way that's ultimately engaging to others, which hopefully, right, is at least in my view, why we do the work. The question's not totally for ourselves.
1: Well, that's right. And you are the queen of the three minute question, <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> I have been a finalist many times. <laughs>
1: Well, I heard you present once and you should have
0: won. Oh, you thank were, you.
1: You were the audience choice. I was. I was that's called.
0: true. That's very true. Yeah.
1: So it was the best.
0: Clearly. That's, the best. Um, that's what you we're there for. It. Yeah, there obviously. You <laughs>